This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to open it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today. With its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp clean finish. Cheers! Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. With over a hundred movies and two Academy Awards to his credit over six decades, Hollywood legend Michael Caine is one of our best-loved actors. He's starred in a huge range of films, from the classic movies Alfie, Zulu, and The Italian Job, to the Hollywood blockbusting Dark Knight trilogy, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Hannah and Her Sisters, and The Cider House Rules. Michael Caine has excelled in every kind of role with a skill that makes it look easy. He knows what success takes because he's made it to the pinnacle of his profession from humble origins. But as he says, small parts can lead to big things. And if you keep doing things right, the stars will align when you least expect it. Now in his 85th year, he wants to share everything he's learned in his new book, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off and Other Lessons in Life. And today he joins me over the phone to talk about the book and his remarkable career. He discusses why he never used to believe in taking advice from older movie stars, his humble beginnings in the working-class projects of London known as the Elephant Castle, and how the 1960s changed everything and made it cool to be a young cockney in the movies. He shares how he learned discipline serving in the Korean War and why it's not just enough to be a good actor. As he says, you have to make reliability your brand. He talks about coming out of his self-imposed retirement some 20 years ago and says he's getting better parts now than he did when he was a young leading man, and he has no plan to stop anytime soon. Plus, why John Wayne never wore suede shoes, John Huston on a director's most important job, doing Vegas with Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, and Michael Caine on who does the best impression of Michael Caine. All that and more coming up in just a moment. Sir Michael Caine has been Oscar-nominated six times, winning his first Academy Award for the 1986 film Hannah and Her Sisters and his second in 1999 for The Cider House Rules. He has starred in over a hundred films, becoming well-known for several critically acclaimed performances, including his first major film role in Zulu in 1964, followed by films including The Ipcris Files, Get Carter, Alfie, The Italian Job, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Educating Rita, and more recently, The Dark Knight, Is Anybody There?, and Harry Brown. He was appointed a CBE in 1992 and knighted in 2000 in recognition of his contributions to cinema. He's written a new book titled Blowing the Bloody Doors Off and Other Lessons in Life. Sir Michael Kane, thanks for joining me over the phone from across the pond. Well, thank you, sir. 
Well, you're now 85 years old and still going strong, still working a lot. In fact, you've done some of your best work in recent years, and now you want to share some of what you've learned with the younger generation. That's something of a shift in your thinking, isn't it? Because you say in here that you never used to believe in taking advice from old movie stars. Why not? Well, because the only advice I ever got from older actors was give up. You're not good enough. <laughs> it was true. Everything and any older older actor ever said to me was negative, and they said, "You, you know, Michael, you know, you're you're a lovely boy, you're a nice boy, and everything. You're not bad looking, but give up. You're you're not going to make it." <laughs> and a lot of producers said that to me. As a matter of fact, when I first started, everybody said that to me. Uh, um, but but one of the reasons I, I wrote the book was that I, I was watching television one day and I saw a load of young people being asked what to, what they wanted were going to do in life, and everybody said I want to be this, I want to do that, I want to do that, and then and several of them said something which which struck me. They said they all said I want to be rich and famous, which I thought was a very you know not a great idea in life because I I became an actor knowing absolutely knowing that I would never be rich or famous. <laughs> I would never be that successful. I had a thick Cockney accent. I'd been in the army in Korea. I came out and I, I, I had malaria after an incubation period. You know, it, it takes months for malaria to hit you. And I was home and in civilian street where, when, when the malaria hit me. So here I was, skinny, pale, yellow, Cockney accent, not movie star material. <laughs> and so I, I set out on a career just to be the best that I could possibly be with no reference to anybody else. Because, if you, if, you know, I knew there'd always be actors who were better than me and there'd be actors who were worse than me. I just set out and, and I, I, I wanted to put this point across as a lesson to young people. is just set out to do what you want to do and be the best that you can possibly be at it and let God take care of the rest. Right, because when you came up as an actor in the 60s, no leading men wore glasses. But I guess you decided to be the cool guy with glasses. Uh, oh, I know where leading men talk with Cockney accents. And <laughs> yeah, those exactly. leading men were from working-class backgrounds in England. It was the 60s uh, where I made my name, and, and, and that was because of the social revolution mm -hmm. that was brought about. I mean, not by any one person, and, and not even deliberately. It was just a whole group of young people who had grown up in, in very strange circumstances. If you think in terms of my generation, the oldest of us, of which I am one, were born in, in, in the 1930s. And then we went in when we were six. I was six till 12. I was in the Second World War. When I got to 18, I was sent to Korea to fight uh, a Chinese army. Uh, and we, this is not a normal upbringing for a young person. Yeah. And then when we got, we came home and we were in the 50s, there was still rationing. You couldn't buy anything. And, and London, where I lived, the people burnt coal for heat. And so there was massive smog and it was a miserable city. And that there was no, no places to go, nothing to do. And then in the 60s, Khrushchev said, we have the atom bomb. You have four minutes to live if we drop it. And I, without anybody, no group, no leaders, no nothing, just on our own, thousands of us just said, well, we've got four minutes to live. Let's have a good time. <laughs> and that's what we did. 
you start out the book with the advice that where you start out doesn't have to be where you end up. And you would know you grew up as a working class kid from the elephant or the projects, as we Yanks would call them. And back then, England still had something of a rigid caste system. Well, that's it, because I was nobody from nowhere who knew nothing. But you said when the 60s came along, it was a great time to be a young cockney with ambition. <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing we got was the most important thing. We got the writers. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, we, nobody had written. I, I, one, one of my first jobs in the theater in London, I understudied Peter O'Toole in a play called The Long, The Short, and The Tall, which was about British soldiers. Well, that was the first British play ever written about private soldiers. Interesting. All the rest have been about officers. Yeah. And that was the start of the change in things. And then Bill Norton wrote about uh, Alfie, a working class boy. John Osborne wrote uh, uh, um, Look Back in Anger about a working class man. And, and the writing came along and made the rest of us. You mentioned a moment ago your service in the Korean War. You describe it as the worst experience of your life, but also one of the most valuable. Are there things that you learned in the military that have served you well as an actor? Oh, yeah. I, I learned that I could conquer nerves. Mm-hmm. That's a good That's test of nerves. Thing, but I mean, <laughs> well, you know something? I've always said uh, to my children and grandchildren, I've said, no matter what situation you're in that is bad, look at it because you can use the difficulty. You know, yeah. and, and my using the difficulty in, in, in Korea was I got myself into a situation where I thought I was going to die. And I, the main worry was, was I a coward? And I wasn't. And, mm. and, and that helped me for the rest of my life. And you can bring things like that right up to date in as much as if you get, if you get uh, all this uh, thing about producers assaulting actresses, you know, and the Me Too and everything. Um, this is a terrible thing. Terrible. But a good thing has come out of it. You use the difficulty. The good thing that came out of that was that for 50 years now, no producer would dare sexually harass an actress. Because he knows he's going to be in the paper tomorrow morning. Absolutely. And speaking of womanizers, you got your first Oscar nomination for playing a womanizer in Alfie. But you say that when Alfie came out, a lot of people, especially women, confused Michael Caine with the character and assumed that you were the skirt-chasing, love em and leave em type. But you were never like that. The way you viewed women was entirely different from the way Alfie treated women. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm... The thing is, it started off with my mother. I adored my mother. Uh, uh, my mother was a, a wonderful woman and a wonderful influence on me. Uh, and and uh, I, I had four great agents in my career, and three of them were women. <laughs> the two women who run my, the two people who run my career now. Tony Howard and Kate—they're both women. That's right. I forgot that you were with Tony Howard. She's just great. Um, I want to ask you about coming up in the British cinema in the '60s, right in the middle of the whole mod revolution. And for moviegoers around the world, and especially here in America, one British film franchise loomed very large in the culture in those days. I'm, of course, talking about the James Bond movies. You were close friends with Sean Connery and Roger Moore, and you got an early break in your career from Harry Saltzman, the producer of the Bond series. Yeah. Were you ever up for James Bond, or did you ever aspire to be James Bond? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I wasn't James Bond. I was more a real person. James Bond is a character, a fabulous character, obviously we know. 
Uh, but but I, I I wasn't I wasn't like that. That's true. But you did kind of get to play the working man's James Bond in the Ipcris Files. Well, I know Sean was working class, but I I was real work. You know, Sean was a, a, a big guy. I mean, he, he was he was a big weightlifter. He, he was Mister Edinburgh, and he was this massive man. But I never I never thought of being James Bond in my life. And it was right after the Ipcris Files and Alfie that you started getting interest from movie studios in the U.S. When you first came to Los Angeles, you arrived just at the tail end of the golden age of Hollywood, and you were lucky enough to get to know some of the great screen icons, including some who were your personal heroes. Who were you most starstruck by? Um, well, I think it was Frank Sinatra. Yeah. You dated his yeah. daughter for a while, didn't you? Yeah, well, we, we we didn't date. We were friends, oh, you know. Okay. There was no love affair or anything. I see. But we were just friends and went out together occasionally. But then that, that's how I met Frank, through, through, through Nancy Jr. He took the shine to me as a person. He, because of my accent, he thought I was very funny. I made him laugh a lot, you know. What was old Blue Eyes like? Was he a good guy? Because I've heard stories of how if he was your friend, he was the best guy in the world. But if you got on his bad side... He had this hair-trigger temper, and his mood could just turn on a dime, and he could go from treating you like a brother to being just vicious. Did yeah, you ever see yeah. that side oh, of him? Oh, yeah, he changed quickly, yeah. you know. Uh, 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 and uh, um, But not with me. Uh, really? Uh, he, he, he found my accent funny. I, I, <laughs> I'd just say, good morning, Frank, and he'd start laughing, you know. <laughs> and so and I had this little relationship with him, uh, uh, um, it, I, I done it, it was just weird, and uh, uh, I, he took me to, to Vegas, you know, and I had this incredible time with him. It was wonderful, wonderful. Who are some of your other favorites from the golden age that you actually got to know? You know, I met Greg Peck, who was my favorite, Gregory Peck, who was my favorite actor, and, all, and Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau, and all these great people, and, you know, I, I, I had a wonderful time. I, I, I miss several of my, my favorites. I, I, Clark Gable was already dead. Humphrey Bogart oh, yeah. was already dead. But I did meet and became friends, become friends with Cary Grant, which was fabulous. Well, Cary Grant is another actor who, like you, came from a British working-class background, but then he came to Hollywood, and he sort of reinvented himself as this very posh, well-dressed Englishman, just as if he had been to the manor born. Yeah, well, you, you had to do that. Uh, in order to make it, you know, mm-hmm. you had to become posh. I mean, Roger became quite posh. Roger uh, yeah. Moore, <laughs> he was he was the son of a policeman. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, in Brixton, which is a lower class work place, uh, part of London, they avoided the sort of working class thing. And the supreme example of that is Richard Burton, who was right. very working class, but they, they, he he came too early for the sixties. He was on his own, and, and he was from a very poor family. Uh, but but in, and no one was writing working-class stuff, and he became a classical actor just like the rest of them, Olivier and John Gilgood and Ralph Richardson. And all. He became a class British actor for, for classical Shakespeare and everything. But, I mean, uh, he did look back in anger first. Yeah. You know, he did the film, and, and, uh, 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 which is the first big working-class play. And speaking of Richard Burton, you were part of that group of British actors in the 60s who partied hard and drank a lot, like Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris. Oh, yeah. You say it never affected your career, but at a certain point, you were worried about your health, and part of the reason you decided to curb your drinking was because you had seen what it did to Richard Burton. 
Oh yeah, Richard Richard destroyed himself. Well, a lot, a lot of them did, you know. Yeah. There were a lot of actors who died who weren't famous, but my friends who died of alcoholism, there were about five of them died of alcoholism along wow. the way, who could have all been famous, but yeah. they, they successful at least, not famous, but uh, uh, um, but they all died of, of alcoholism. Yeah, and I also want to give credit to your wife, Shakira, who you say probably saved your life by getting you to moderate your drinking. That's a good woman. Oh, blimey, yes, yeah. I, I, I met my wife 47 years ago, and I was drinking. I wasn't, I was, I was, I was probably on the fringes of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I was drinking a lot, um, but, but I met her, and she stopped it. And, yeah. Well, I, I, she didn't stop it. I met her, and she gave me all the reasons. She negated all the reasons I had for drinking. Mm-hmm. I was on my own. Uh, I was lonely, I was nervous, I was in a very highly competitive business, and we were all like that. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Sir Michael Caine when we come back in just a minute. Almost every day we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's just a bunch of pranksters. But more often, it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack our power grid, our banking system, or our military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting our country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep your country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov NSA. Folks, I was really dragging this morning, and I didn't have time to wait in line for a coffee before I came into the studio. So I'll tell you what I did. I grabbed an espresso monster. That's right. The guys from Monster Energy Drinks now have a delicious, creamy espresso drink in two different flavors. I tried the vanilla espresso today, and it gave me just the shot in the arm that I needed to power through my day. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of smooth espresso and cream packaged in an 8.4-ounce can, so it's just the right size and perfect for when you're on the go. Each can has three shots of espresso, that's right, three shots, blended with European milk just the way the Italians do it. And at 150 to 160 milligrams of caffeine per can, it's sure to give you the energy you need to conquer the day. Espresso Monster has two delicious flavors to choose from, espresso and cream and vanilla espresso. Produced in Denmark and the Netherlands, Espresso Monster is made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend that's complete with taurine and B vitamins. Espresso Monster certainly got me going this morning, and it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. You gotta give it a try, folks. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, back to the podcast. You opened the book by recalling some advice you got when you first came to Los Angeles from a real Hollywood legend who started by making a hell of an entrance outside the Beverly Hills Hotel where you were staying at the time. Uh, do you yeah. know the story I'm talking about? Could you tell it? Oh, yeah. John Wayne. Yeah. 
the Duke. Yeah, John Wayne. Well, I'll tell you what happened. What happened is that Shirley MacLaine had seen Alfie, and they were looking for a leading man for her new film. And I don't think they had the budget for a big, uh, proper star. And they chose me <laughs> for Gambit. And I, I got to Hollywood for Gambit, and they put me in a lovely suite in the Beverly Hills Hotel. But then Shirley was late getting to Hollywood because the picture she was doing went over. And uh, so I was stuck in this Beverly Hills Hotel luxury suite for a week without talking to anybody because nobody knew I was there and I didn't know anybody who was there either. (laughs) And so I used to go down in the lobby and, and, and look to see if I could see any film stars. And I saw loads of them, you know. And then one day, John Wayne landed in the helicopter, and I was standing, and, and I was sitting in, in the lobby, you know, because I was, what is John Wayne, oh, blimey, and I was all very impressed. And he was signing in. He was still in his cowboy uniform. He'd been shooting in, in somewhere, and he came in in the helicopter straight from the set, because it was either the weekend or the end of the movie. I never found out that. But he suddenly saw me, and he said to me, what's your name, kid? I said, Michael Caine. He said, are you in that movie, Alfie? I said, yeah. He said, I saw that in my home, he said, a couple of weeks ago, kid. He said, you're going to be a big star. So I said, oh, thank you, sir. So he said, let me give you some advice. I said, okay. He said, talk low, talk slow, and don't say too fucking much. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you, sir. Uh, and and then, then he said, and, and I had on suede shoes. And he said, never wear suede shoes. Why? I said, I said, why not? He said, because as I just told you, you're going to be a movie star. I'm famous. He said, you'll be in the toilet taking a piss, and a guy will come up next to you taking a piss, and he'll look and he'll recognize you, and he'll turn on you and say, Michael Caine, and he'll piss all over your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> so uh, I never wore suede shoes again. <laughs> Now, you've also had the privilege of working with some very talented directors, including Woody Allen, Richard Attenborough, Brian De Palma, Sidney Lumet, Stanley Donnan, Chris Nolan, and you did two movies with the great John Huston. What yeah. was he like to work with? Did he give you much direction? Oh, he was fabulous. Uh, what I said, I said him one day, I said, what's the art of direction, Michael? He said, casting. <laughs> he said, if you cast it right, you don't have to do anything else. So you can have a rest. <laughs> so I said, it's like you and Sean, you know, you're British private soldiers. That's fine. And you and he have both been British private soldiers. And so that was it. He said, and then, then when I'm, I'm, I was working on the movie and uh, I was doing this very long speech and I thought I was doing it very well. And he, he, he shouted cut in the middle and he stopped it. And I didn't know why he'd stopped it. I said, why'd you stop that? And he just said, he gave me advice about human beings. He said, you can speak fast to Michael. He's an honest man. So I, oh, whenever anyone talks slowly, I worry about them. Yeah, that makes sense. Because a person who's not being honest has to think about what they're saying. But they've got they? to think about what they're going to say. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the faster the people speak, he said, uh, the, the, the better it is. And then the other line he said, which, which impressed me, uh, we would, he never gave me any direction. And, uh, and one day I said to him, John, I said, I said, you never give me any direction. He said, you get paid a great deal of money to do this, Michael. You don't need to tell me to tell you what to do. And that was it. But I, I loved yeah. John Houston. I thought he was a re- really, really great director. 
And you also worked with Otto Primager, who I've heard was a notorious bully. How did you handle him? Um, I said to him one day, because uh, I knew he was a notorious bully, I said, Otto, please don't bully me. He said, I said, because I, I, I'm very sensitive. I'll burst into tears and I'll run <laughs> into my dressing room and I won't come out all day. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, Michael, he said, I would never shout at Alfie. <laughs> <laughs> he laid off of you. Huh? He completely laid off of me, but Faye Dalloway got all the crap. She, he really got to go to Faye. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your process. You've come to be known for having a certain economy to your acting style. You're not one for big showy gestures or loud performances. Is it hard to control the impulse to go big when you're acting? And take it easy because you're not playing an actor and you are not acting. Mm-hmm. You are a real person, and people can see that you're. They're not sitting in an audience, twenty feet away, twenty yards away from the stage. The camera is a, two feet away from your face, and if you're not a real person, they will see that. They don't want to see acting; they want to see reality, and that's that's what you do in a movie. I wonder, do you think that you learned this more economical acting style of yours as a product of the fact that you grew up looking up to the American film stars like Bogart and Brando, as opposed to the more theatrically trained British actors like, say, Olivier or Gielgud? That's right. Yeah, see, I never went to the theater. I went to the cinema. Yeah. And and also, uh, a, a lucky thing from the 60s that happened was we all looked up on these uh, Hollywood stars, you know, as great stars like like gods. Right. There was a certain degree of inaccessibility to movie stars back then. But what happened in the 60s was people started to look at actors who were just like them, and that's how we became stars, because people people didn't think we were gods. People thought we were them, which we were. Yeah, yeah, and you're a method actor, so you're always studying people, I'm right? a method actor, yeah. I went to... A, 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 Joan Littlewood's theatre in Stratford in, in England, which is a communist theatre, and it's Stanislavski <laughs> and the Russians, you know. And and I, I learned a lot from her. But but she also fired me. Oh, really? Why? Why? Because I, I was rehearsing a play. And and she said, what do you think you're doing? I'm, I'm, I'm rehearsing the play. I know all my lines. She said, no, what are you doing? Well, what, why are you doing this? <laughs> I said, what, 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 what she said, this is a group theater, Michael. You joined a group theater. We are a group. I said, well, what am I doing? She said, you're behaving and acting like a star. <laughs> and in the end, she fired me. She said, piss off the Shaftesbury Avenue, which is where, like Broadway, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, I, I wasn't a real method actor working with the other actors. I was really? being a star on my own. Was she right? But it worked out that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But I didn't understand it. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Well, you yourself have a lot of good advice for actors in this book, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off. You tell aspiring actors to make reliability part of your personal brand. You take your work seriously, and you're very deliberate and disciplined about it, and that seems to have served you pretty well in your career. Oh, yeah. Oh, you've got to turn up and be there. Know the lines. You've got to know the lines and respect your other actors. By way of example, could you walk us through your daily process on a film shoot? 
on a film shoot is I learn my, I keep learning my lines right up until we shoot and then but I'm always relaxed on the set always I get the whole set relaxed and then you go into the character just before and stay there just before they, they say action your philosophy is the rehearsal is the work and the acting is the relaxation yeah the shooting the shooting of the scene is the, you're relaxed after doing all that work on rehearsals mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're doing you know all the lines and now you can relax and mm-hmm. just do it and always bring a pencil, huh? Yeah, always bring a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been an actor who works a lot. Even after you supposedly retired over 20 years ago, you've still done over 40 movies. Why? Is it as simple as the more movies you do, the better chance you have of getting good ones? Well, I, I love doing it. I, I love I love acting. Mm-hmm. You have to remember, I was an amateur actor. I did it just for the fun of it. Uh, and and, and I, I love doing it. And I, I love movies. I love making movies. And, and you know, I, I thought I'd retired when I was 60. And I, I got a script from a producer, and I sent it back. I said, the part's too small. He sent it back. He said, you're not supposed to read The Lover. You're supposed to read The Father. <laughs> and that was, it's, I was 60, and I retired. And I wrote my autobiography. I went to Miami. I bought an apartment for the, for the winter. And I opened a restaurant, which was very successful. And, and I just stayed in Miami, and I wrote my autobiography, which is called The The Elephant to Hollywood, based on the fact that I come from a district in London called The Elephant and Castle. And so I, I wrote that, and I'd retired, you know, and I would, uh, um, I had plenty of money in the bank, and I, I, the restaurant was making money. And then I became, Jack Nicholson lived there, and we became friends, and then one day he, he came to me with a script called Blood and Wine. He said, you want to go to work again? It's, a, it's not the starring part. Obviously, he was the star, and he was fabulous. I loved him. And uh, uh, he said, there's a wonderful part in it for you. And I, I got this part, which wasn't the starring role. And that's how I became uh, a character actor in movies. I, I gave up stardom. And, and I mean, I'm very often billed high up and all that. And then uh, my whole career came. I won an Academy Award for the Cider House Rules. I did six movies with, with Chris Nolan, the Batman and the Inception and all those. I did some of the best work of my life after I retired. Right. In fact, you say you're actually getting better parts now than you did when you were a 20-something leading man. What do you like more about the roles you're playing today? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, and I've had a wonderful time doing it. Now I've, I've come to the conclusion that uh, you don't retire from movies. Movies retire you. So <laughs> if they keep sending me scripts and I like one, which I occasionally do, I'll do it. Now that you have a little less time and other priorities in life, do you find that you're becoming pickier about the roles you choose? Oh, my God, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did many movies for the money, you know, uh, um, but I'm much pickier now. Well, I was very broke when I was young, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had a whole family that had no money. I used to do movies just to make a couple of bucks. Yeah, and I think that you said that now one of your biggest criteria for a film is the location. If it's somewhere that's pleasant that your family wants to go, like, say, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, then that's a big factor in whether you do the movie. Oh, yeah, that's a big factor, yeah. yeah. My family, and I have three grandchildren now, they got to come and all. Mm-hmm. That's so I, I only choose that, except, except for Prague, which I'm shooting in now. Uh, my grandchildren don't want to go there, but everybody else does because Prague's such a great city. Yeah. And I've been there before. I shot a movie there. I forget what it was, but uh-huh. about 30 years ago, I shot a movie there. 
Yeah, and I was sort of delighted to read that uh, one of your favorite experiences on a film was Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because I was a kid and that was my introduction to you when that came oh, out. Really? I, I watched yeah. it a hundred oh, times as a, a child. Film to do. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you're on the Riviera. I mean, what could be better than that? <laughs> well, also, they rented a house for me because I was down there with my family. I had two daughters at that time. Uh, 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 and uh, they rented a house between Roger Moore and Leslie Brickers, the composer, who were two of my closest wow. friends. It was wonderful, wonderful. And a lot of laughs. You said that you once did a scene with Glenn Headley where you had 50 takes because oh, uh, you kept cracking up. We couldn't, huh? we couldn't We couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Do it you remember so what the scene was? Glenn died so young, you know. I know. A young woman like that of a heart attack. A woman of a heart attack, you know. Yeah. I always associate heart attacks with old men. And there was this young, wonderful woman, a fabulous actress. Yeah. I was so upset. Yeah. Speaking of older men, I laughed out loud when I read you say that you really don't feel your age at 85, but you feel it when you're on a film set and you see your stand-in, huh? Yeah, yeah. You suddenly see this old man doddering on and you go, who's he? And they say, this your stand-in, Michael. And you go, oh, shit. Is that how other people see me? <laughs> yeah. And now family's definitely, as you said, a bigger priority now. Uh, you've been married to your lovely wife for 47 years. I'm about to take yeah. the plunge myself in literally three days. Give me a little advice, Michael. How do you keep it going that long? Separate bathrooms. <laughs> Never share a bathroom. <laughs> I love it. Because you won't have any room to put anything. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you this, Michael. Do you think Hollywood is as glamorous today as it was when you first came to town? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, what it is, they've gone for these very big pictures, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, like Star Wars and all that sort of thing. So you never get uh, uh, glamorous personal films much anymore. Well, you do, but they're not so not so many of them. Mm -hmm. Hollywood was made up of those when when I first went there. Yeah, they made the occasional blockbuster, great big film, science fiction, or something. But now that's all they make. It seems to me. Well, I've so enjoyed the book and the interview. Uh, before we go, I just have to ask, uh, there are many people who have made quite a thing of doing Michael Caine impressions. Who do you think does the best Michael Caine? Present company accepted, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, well, I, I'd never seen it. I was doing an interview for CNN the other day, and they brought on, they were doing clips of people who, who did impressions of me. And I was stunned by the, the impression done by Tom Hanks. Oh, I'd really? Never seen on it. Saturday Night Live? He did it on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I, I remember and, that. And, you know, and he's got to do that accent, and he's an American, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. And, and, so I, I, and I love Tom Hanks as an actor anyway, so he's my favorite. Well, tell me how I'm doing here. Hello, my name is Michael. K oh, that's a terrible one. Never mind. <laughs> I did a better one earlier for my it. fiance. You nearly got it. Never mind. Well, once more, Sir Michael Caine's book is called "Blowing the Bloody Doors Off and Other Lessons in Life." Sir Michael Caine, this has been fun. Thanks so much for the chat. Thanks for so much for me. It's been fun for me too. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks again to Sir Michael Caine for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off, and other lessons in life on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow him on Twitter at at TheMichaelCaine. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. 
Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.